uncommon sense advice on your work life, your personal life, and God knows what else. Welcome to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. I don't think of myself as a particularly good storyteller, and yet people really love stories, so I want to take a shot at it. I think my best chance of uh, telling decent stories that will be of value to you are to tell you stories from my life. So I made a list of three, six, nine, eleven stories that, um, ten, um, that may be instructive, maybe not, but I'll do my best. Uh, when I was a kid, nobody ever taught me that you're that showing off was bad. In fact, I believed that showing off was a way of sharing your abilities with others, uh, as well as, to, for example, to impress teachers. So I was somebody who would be, uh, frankly, even yelling out the answers when the teacher asked kids to raise their hand. And of course, there were some kids who weren't particularly academically oriented who didn't like that. And so I'll never forget, and this happened regularly, but I'll never forget there were two brothers, the Piscatelli brothers, Anthony Piscatelli and Michael Piscatelli. And I remember one of them saying to me, you may beat us inside, but we can beat you outside. And one day I'm walking out of school and behind the bushes were hidden the Piscatelli brothers and they beat the shit out of me. And it's amazing how kids need, desperately need feedback on what they're doing wrong. Nobody ever told me about this. And so if you're a parent, especially, but even as any adult, if you're not sure why people are not liking you very much, ask trusted people for feedback. Ask your, if, ask your child's teacher was what, to watch your kid on the schoolyard. If your child has a friend, ask who's a trusted friend, ask what do you think keeps your child from not being invited to many birthday parties, not getting many Valentine's Day parties, not getting chosen for sports, uh, when they choose up sides, uh, getting chosen last or not at all. That's my tip of the day, my first story, the story of the Piscatellis and the importance of getting feedback. The next was um, when I was in the fourth grade, I had a teacher who was so hated my behavior. I was, I, Ritalin was available when I was a kid. They would have put me on it intravenously because I just couldn't sit in my seat, partly because I was an active boy, but partly I was just so damn bored. So not surprisingly, as usual, um, the, Mrs. Alf, like all the previous teachers, gave me either needs improvement or unsatisfactory in conduct, whatever they used to call it. They call it social behavior. But in the old days, they certainly didn't have computers. And so the report card was just a piece of folded cardboard that had space for three marking periods. And as usual, the first marking period, I got unsatisfactory. Uh, second marking period, which was in February, unsatisfactory. And this was when we got that second report card. And the third marking period wasn't until June. And yet she had checked unsatisfactory for June. And so my mother asked why. And the teacher said, Martin's behavior is so much below unsatisfactory that even if he was perfect for the rest of the year, he'd still be unsatisfactory. So what I guess I want to say about that is that I've clearly not been an utter failure in my life. Um, and so if you have gotten uh, bad grades for behavior in class, sure, as an adult, ask yourself, are there lessons to be learned from that? But sometimes it's simply developmental or that you are not that much of a conformist. So lesson two, take such grades with grains of salt, even academic grades, because we all know there are many people who are highly successful who are not A students.
The third story is something um, it's my father told me when I was about 13. He had been a factory worker, but finally saved up enough money to uh, open a tiny little store in a terrible neighborhood. And it was a very dangerous neighborhood. Kids would come to steal and rob, rob his store all the time. And he couldn't afford a security guard, so on Saturdays he had me be the security guard. And one day when business was slow, I was, like I said, around 13, I, I said, Daddy, how come you so rarely talk about the Holocaust? And he stiffened, which is something he rarely did, and he said, Martin, the Nazis took five years from my life. I won't give them one minute more. He said, Martin, never look back. Always take the next step forward. And I've always felt that was the most useful advice I ever got, because he, who was wrested from his home as a child, suffering unspeakable tortures in, the, in concentration camps, if he can say that, never look back, always take the next step forward, then how can I make excuses for crap that happened to me in my past? So lesson there is, yeah, occasionally it's worth revisiting past trauma, but generally I believe deeply in my father's advice, stop looking back, take the next step forward. Next little story I want to tell you is about Jeffrey Crew. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was a pianist, and I uh, was actually making quite a good living as a pianist, a keyboard, actually organ back in those days. They had these Farfisa Combo Compact Deluxe organs that I would cart. They weighed 50 pounds, but, and it made organs, an organ sound, which was very like a rock and roll organ sound. And I played these, you know, hundreds of weddings. I played over 2,000 before I was 22. Why do I tell you that? Because I made a lot of money for a kid who was still living at home. And so I was always addicted to adrenaline. I've stopped that now in my old age. Just it's no, it's no longer fun. It seems so silly. But I was very addicted to adrenaline, so not surprisingly, I had this, all this money in my pocket. I didn't mind gambling, so I used to play poker. And then I met a kid, a guy, this was in college. I'll just say his name is Jeffrey. He was a fellow denizen of Rat House Hall, which was the piano place with a music building. And we would play, we, each of us played the piano. And one day he came into that little room where I was playing, and he says, Marty, I figured out the secret to the track. And he took me and he said, really? And I had all this money in my pocket. I said, what the hell? So we went to Aqueduct and I had the misfortune of winning. He followed his, his, his rules. This is what you got to do. You got you know, to look at the kind of the track and not just the track record, but uh, all this stuff. Anyway, and I won the second time with him. And so now I started betting bigger and bigger. And that got me hooked. Long story short, I lost a lot of money. And what really stopped me was one day, you know, I was living with my parents when I was, they went to commuter college. Jeffrey came to the door at 11 o'clock, whatever, we were gonna go to Aqueduct. And my mother came to the door and said to him, get out of here, get out of here, I never wanna see you again. And you would think that, you know, me being of college age, I would have resented my mother's intrusion, but I was kind of a nice boy, so to speak. And so he went away, I never saw him again. And I stopped my terrible addiction to gambling. I really was. I went to the track twice a day for years, for like two or three years, like five days a week, and lost a fortune. And it was my mother who at a when I was at age 19 or whatever it was, who simply banished him. And I and that was the best thing my mother could have ever done. There are some parents who say, oh, your child's 18, you're on your own. Uh, my mother didn't do that. And I think that was very wise. So if you're a parent, sure. You know, if you've got a good kid or whatever, you don't want to exert undue control. But there's a time that no matter how old your kid is, sometimes being tough like that with the right kid can work. 
Next story. I was uh, in college. I drove a taxi cab to make some money in addition to playing the piano because I always liked to work. And I was driving around, and, I, and there's this place on 66th Street on the east side of Manhattan called the Rockefeller University. And I had just heard about it, coincidentally, the, the day before from my girlfriend, Ruthie. And it's really, it had the highest concentration of uh, Nobel Prize winners in the world in this little little place. And so I, I decided to drive around the block until somebody from Rockefeller came and hailed in a cab. And the guy gets in, and I, I uh, ask him, by any chance, do you work at the Rockefeller? He says, yes. I say, um, in what field? He says, psychology. Well, I was a psych major, and I asked him what his name was. And he said, Neil Miller. And I had, coincidentally, again, maybe, I don't know, a few months ago, I had been reading about Neil Miller. And I said a joke, half-joking. I said, Dr. Miller, I'm not letting you out of this cab until you give me a job. Fortunately, he laughed. He said, write me a letter. Well, this was before computers. When I got home, my shift was over at midnight. I went home to the typewriter, and I typed a letter saying why I, I would be honored to work there. And I got to work there. Um, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is this. This was between my junior and senior years, and I worked there for a few months. And at the end of that, I was facing my senior year in a bunch of courses that I wasn't particularly interested in taking. And so I went to the chair of the psychology department and I asked him, is there any way I can get credit for my few months at the Rockefeller? And he asked me, we were walking, I remember he was walking to his class and it was Remsen Hall. And he asked me, well, what'd you learn? I said that even famous people can make mistakes. And he said that was worth two semesters of A. So he gave me like 24 units of A or some ridiculous amount. And lo and behold, UC Berkeley, when I was applying to graduate schools, UC Berkeley only looked at your last year's grades, which was almost exclusively, in my case, this easy A's that I got from working at the Rockefeller. And that's what got me not only into the Berkeley PhD program, but I got a, a full ride, not only a full ride, but they actually paid me a few thousand bucks and housing to go there. There's a lot of luck in this world. Yes, I was assertive. Yes, I followed through, but there was a lot of luck in that story. So it's taught me the importance of, yes, being a follow-through person, but also luck matters, perhaps more than we'd like to acknowledge. All right, I've got a few more of these stories, but I uh, should let you, I should take a little break so that the announcer can tell you what you're listening to. Uh, it'll just be a few seconds. I hope you'll stay with me. You're listening to How to Do Life with career and personal coach, Dr. Marty Nemco. If you'd like to work with him, email him a description of your situation, mnemco at comcast.net. That's M-N-E-M-K-O at comcast.net. Marty is pleased if you choose to subscribe to this podcast. If you're not listening to this on Simplecast, just go to how-to-life.simplecast and click on listen and subscribe. Yes, you did stay with me. So now I want to talk about this. I, I got a, a, a PhD from Berkeley, and and frankly, I had um, felt that although my PhD was in educational psychology and I was supposedly now qualified to train teachers, I didn't feel like I, I learned a lot of theory, but I didn't feel I was going to be very good. So I took a job in, uh, and I wanted to teach. At that point, I was a big liberal, and I took a job in a really challenging area, the Richmond Unified School District, all very low income. And um, 
the story, I, I really work my butt off. That's, that's my nature. I have many weaknesses, but one of my strengths is I really work hard. I do everything I can. So with my classes, I did things like I convinced the Bally Corporation to give me a uh, an arcade Pac-Man, a Ms. Pac-Man machine to use as a reinforcer, and they wheeled it into my class. I went and convinced the Richmond Police Department to... Um, let me have a class set full of bicycles, which we then tore apart, put together, and wrote a manual on how to fix bicycles. I'm a musician, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, and so I rewrote the sound of music, The Wizard of Oz and Oliver, in shorter versions that could be performed in one class period, and I played the piano for it and directed it, and we did plays. I played basketball with the kids, but that leads me to the, what is a very sad conclusion to my experience in, that, in, the, in those schools. I really wanted those kids to experience what life is like in a middle-class family. So I invited them over, and about 12 came, to stay and spend the weekend with my family, with my daughter, my wife, and me. But not all 12 could fit in my house. So uh, I had a classroom aide, and she lived right down the street. So I had half the kids stay with her, and half the kids stayed with me. In the morning, the aide comes to me with tears in her eyes, and saying the two of them, these were 13-year-olds, raped her in the middle of the night. And that made me feel, it was like, really that was kind of the final nail in the coffin because I had worked so hard and my, while the kids really loved me, I didn't get the feeling that whatever difference I was going to make was going to make enough of a difference. But this was the nail in the coffin um, that after all the love we gave to those kids uh, and this opportunity that no other teacher I had ever heard of had given, that two of them would rape my aide. It was just incomprehensible to me. And so I feel, you know, I just, maybe I'm lacking enough in the ability to deal with such kids successfully. So I gave that up. And then I started to apply for professorships. And I made 100 applications or so, maybe not 100, maybe 50. But I was, you know, once I didn't get, I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and once I didn't get any, any uh, bites locally, I searched the whole country. I, I remember... I went as far as Brescia College, B-R-E-S-C-I-A College. I think it was in Tennessee or Kentucky or something. And I didn't even get an interview there. And even though I had a you know, PhD from Berkeley, a 3.9 GPA, and I'm a good teacher, didn't matter. Uh, I'm a good writer. Um, and I, I've, I got a couple of temp jobs, but, you know, just a few thousand dollars to teach part-time, temporary. Then I finally became a finalist for a tenure-track job that's like a permanent job at San Francisco State University. And the, it was the interview from heaven. It just, I feel like I nailed all the answers. They were nodding. They were laughing at my jokes. And at the end, the chair of the department asked, the, there were like five of them, and the four of them to leave, and the chair stayed and asked me to stay behind. And I felt like, okay, finally I'm going to get a job, a real job. And he said to me, Marty, you're by far the most qualified candidate for the job, but you don't stand a ghost of a chance of getting it. I want to save you the cognitive dissonance. He said, Marty, the dean has informed us that the next seven tenure-track positions to be filled will be women and minorities, and that really dispirited me. And unfortunately, as a career counselor now who's had over 6,000 clients, I have seen many, not many, a good number of my clients cry or be angry, or both, when they feel they've been passed over because they were the wrong race or gender. Sad state of affairs when merit seems to be moving toward the back of the bus. So please, yes, you know, merit still matters a lot, but 
if you are getting rejected from jobs and you feel it's not on the merits, the only lesson I can say in that is, you know, um, you're not alone. Now I want to talk about um, uh, a little mishap, not a mishap, a setback I had. I, as a pianist, I, it was rather ironic that in recent years I developed a hand condition. I can't straighten this finger at all. I can't straighten this finger much, and I can't straighten this finger much. So I've had to become a seven-fingered piano player. And fortunately, um, not fortunately, um, at some point when I, this reared its ugly head, there was a place in Napa, which is where I spent, where I live much of the time, called the Napa Valley Opera House. And it had, in the turn of the century, I, I was told that it didn't just have opera, but, but leading performers like Scott Joplin, the famous uh, ragtime pianist, and it had closed down from disuse. And then the Mondavi family, the rich Mondavi family, who own Mondavi wineries, gave $50 million to restore the Napa Valley Opera House to its former glory. And then they had the gala grand opening for the reopening of it. And I was honored that they asked me to play the piano for it. But now they didn't know that I had since they had heard that you know that my fingers had gotten to be like this, and so I got I w it was very hard for me to say should do I turn this down, do I try to play with seven fingers, and so I did try to play with seven fingers, and I'm going to try to reproduce that for you here. I'm going to try to uh, play Scott that very the thing I played there, which is I wanted I figured I'd play the Scott Joplin's iconic song Maple Leaf Rag, and I'm going to do that for you now too. It starts slow, but once I warm up, I think maybe it'll speed up a bit. Thank you. 
what's the lesson in that? We have a certain amount of control over what to do when shit has happened to us. And um, I decided to not let myself be a cripple. And I continue to play the piano, and uh, although my typing sucks now because of the seven fingers, um, what can I tell you? So, that's something to think about, maybe hopefully a bit inspiring for the setbacks that all of us have faced. Maybe you have, no doubt, you face something like that. Now I want to talk about a, a lesson I learned about charity. I've been fortunate to not be a big spender, but I've made an upper middle class living my, most of my life and, and invested, you know, prudently. Nothing fancy, just basically Vanguard mutual funds and ETFs and done very well. And um, so I'm at a stage in life where I, I have a good cushion and I want to give away money to charity both in my will and while I'm alive. And so I'm going to just talk about two charities that, I, again, I'm not going to mention their names to, for the risk of getting sued, because they'll sue for anything to preserve their reputation, true or not, but I swear everything I'm going to say to you is the truth. It's this very prestigious science nonprofit, and I made a grant to them of a significant amount now, and much more when I die, and it was very specific as to what I wanted to fund. And they agreed, they agreed, they agreed, they signed, they signed, they signed. And in the end, they used the money for what they wanted to, having very little to do with what I donated the money for. Even though when I die, they were anticipating getting a lot more of my money. The other organization is affiliated with a, a prestigious university. And I gave a lot of money to them for to say, to help better prepare young future leaders to be ethical, successful, wise leaders. And what I've gotten for it is trivial. The amount of, for the amount of money, they, the number of students they've, quote, served with just a couple of workshops is all they gave them. And I donated a lot of money, believe me, is, was garbage. They took the money and God knows what they, you know, what they're doing with it. So my advice to you, I've heard many, when I've told the story to other people, many people say it's unclear how much benefit they get from giving to nonprofits. I've come to the conclusion that it is a mistake to let the tail wag the dog. Yes, tax deduction is very nice, but when you give to an individual who's truly going to benefit from it, directly to the individual, no, you can't deduct it, make it tax deductible. But I remember a few years ago giving a few hundred bucks to this landscaping person who was really hardworking and nice and couldn't afford a lawnmower. I bought him a lawnmower, and he greatly increased his business, enabling this good person to get many more clients. That kind of donation, that was small, but it's that giving the individuals where you can actually see the benefit is actually not only more beneficial in terms of the impact you make, but you'll feel better about it because you get, you're up close. If I give, I'm just going to pick a United Way or a Red Cross or whatever, it goes into this vast pool of billions of dollars. It's, it's like they don't even notice it. For example, I'm very pro-choice and I gave some money to Planned Parenthood, but it just goes into this massive pot. 
And God knows how much goes in administration and other frivolous things. Not, not that administration is frivolous, it's not. But is not well spent necessarily. Or is that I gave to an individual. Let's say somebody has, you know, got a really good uh, article or a YouTube video, but he or she is not great at promoting it. Giving some money for that person to promote it on social media, whatever, feels like a good use of the money. The last thing I want to tell you is not so much a story. Those are the stories I want to tell you. But I'm going to be 72 in June, and I'm grateful to still be in, as far as I know, excellent health. And I feel, as, you know, have all the energy and I think brain power I ever had. Yet, because I'm now past 70, I'm fighting to stay relevant. I'm aware that the clock is ticking. This can't last. I've never heard of people in their 80s, except for maybe Noam Chomsky, who are fully productive in their 80s. So this is my decade. And my lesson I want to add, invite you to consider is whether you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, it goes fast. It feels just like yesterday. I was playing stickball in the park with my friend David Willens. Treat time like the treasure it is. Try to make the most of every minute. My definition of that is to use your best skills to make the biggest difference. My best skill, I believe, is thinking on my feet like I'm doing here. and I'm not shy in front of a camera. Whatever your best skill is, even if it's not world class, but use your best skills to make the biggest difference you can that otherwise wouldn't be made. And that's the last advice I want to give you. And so um, I do want to thank you for watching. If you watched on YouTube or if you're listening to my podcast on uh, iTunes or Spotify, thank you for that. I, I always welcome your uh, thumbs up and accept your thumbs down. I always look forward to your comments and especially like if you share on your social media so that my efforts can have broader impact. And I am flattered if you do choose to subscribe to my, whether it be my YouTube channel or my podcast, which is called How to Do Life. In any event, I like to end all these with what I think is as important a quote as I can recall, especially in these times. We find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. You've been listening to How to Do Life with Dr. Marty Nemco. For comments on the show or to consult with Dr. Marty Nemco, his email address is mnemko at comcast.net. Post-production of How to Do Life by Terry Rouse. Music by Blue Dot Session. Thanks for listening.